0: Welcome to A Beggar Who Found Bread, I'm your host, a humble beggar named Brad, and I found bread, the bread of life, the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth. My prayer is for many to be drawn to and to hunger for this bread. This episode, Invisible Touch. Credit Genesis for the title to this episode, English progressive pop rockers and rock and roll hall of famers, Genesis. Invisible Touch is the title track to their 1986 album release. Original vocalist Peter Gabriel left the band in 1974 to pursue a solo career, which worked out pretty well for him. Phil Collins, the band's drummer at that time, took over singing duties as well. And this was when they kind of shifted to more of a pop music sound. Collins, of course, had his own very successful solo career. On an early album in 1971, they had a 23-minute long song called Supper's Ready. 23 minutes is a long song. If radio DJs could get away with it, I'm sure that they'd love to play that at least once per shift. Time for a bathroom break, a snack, a little bit of a nap. But, you know, they'd miss too much commercial time through that, so that's never going to happen. Some Genesis fans actually say Supper's Ready is their best song because it has so many changes and it gives the full spectrum of the band's style all in one song. Collins' health of late is not very good, and he's been doing a farewell tour of sorts and has to remain seated throughout the performances. Kind of sad to see, but fans love and appreciate him very much, and so I think it's probably good for both sides of that. And that's all for now on that topic, because it's not about the music anyway, it's about the message invisible touch. For this episode, we'll take a look at the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I chose the title to this episode due to a specific portion of this section of the letter, which is honestly challenging some of my doctrinal alliance. It's something that I'm I'm still pursuing and studying and digging into. And I'll explain a little bit more on this shortly. We started this study through the epistle um, several weeks back, and that was with the Nobody's Fault episode. I believe each episode does stand on its own, but for a listen through from the beginning, when you have the time, you know, it may be beneficial for you. So for now, I'll start at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, and I'm going to stop. At the first part of verse 17 and stopping in the middle of a verse may seem a little bit strange. But as we should know, the chapter and verse breaks are not part of the original manuscripts. They were inserted later to kind of help people locate specific statements and keep keep track, so to speak. Uh, and, And they're both a help and a hindrance at times, in my opinion. As I read this chapter, uh, there appears the first sentence in, uh, in chapter 17 is kind of a transitional statement, which applies to the topic that Paul has been speaking on and, uh, and has been discussing. And it connects with the next topic he will address in the rest of that chapter which he starts in, uh, in that sentence, which follows, which is included in verse 17. I'm really not clearing this up at all right now. You'll see what I mean in a moment. I hope. All right. First Corinthians chapter seven and verse one. Now to deal with the questions you wrote about, it is good for, is it good for a man to keep away from women? Well, Because of the danger of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife what she is entitled to in the marriage relationship. And the wife should do the same for her husband. The wife is not in charge of her own body, but her husband is. Likewise, the husband is not in charge of his own body, but his wife is. Do not deprive each other except for a limited time by mutual agreement and then only so as to have extra time for prayer. But afterwards, come together again. Otherwise, because of your lack of self-control, you may succumb to the adversary's temptation. I'm giving you this as a suggestion, not as a command. Actually, I wish everyone were like me, but each has his own gift from God. One this, another that. Now, to the single people and the widows, I say that it is fine if they remain unmarried like me. But if they can't exercise self-control, they should get married. Because it is better to get married than to keep burning with sexual desire. To those who are married, I have a command, and it is not from me, but from the Lord. A woman is not to separate herself from her husband, but if she does separate herself, she is to remain single or be reconciled with her husband. Also, a husband is not to leave his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is satisfied to go on living with him, he should not leave her also. If any woman has an unbelieving husband who is satisfied to go on living with her, she is not to leave him. For the unbelieving husband has been set aside for God by the wife, and the unbelieving wife has been been set aside for God by the brother. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are set aside for God." But if the unbelieving spouse separates himself, let him be separated. In circumstances like these, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to a life of peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? only let each person live the life the Lord has assigned him and live it in the condition he was in when God called him. All right, that's 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 17a. And in the next sentence, Paul, uh, the next sentence which he wrote is, this is the rule I lay down in all the congregations. And then in verse 18, he begins to explain the rule which, isn't specifically attached to the previous topic. It's again, I think that the verse 17 only let each person live the life the Lord has assigned him and live it in the condition he was in when God called him. It connects the topic we just read through and it uh, can, will connect to the next topic at hand as well. That's why I stopped there. It's kind of a transitional statement. And so, again, then then in verse 18, he begins to explain the rule, which isn't specifically attached to that previous topic. In any event, let's go through the passage we read to gain some more understanding of this letter Paul wrote to the followers of Messiah Yeshua in the city of Corinth. Once more, this assembly primarily consisted of God-fearing Gentile Followers of Yeshua, who had come out of pagan lifestyles, though there were some displaced Jewish believers in uh, believers in Yeshua among them as well, so Paul is clarifying some of the misunderstandings these believers have espoused. He had written them a previous letter, which uh, he mentions earlier in first Corinthians he mentions uh, that he had written them previously and these believers had also written to him some of what they brought up in their letter he is addressing and correcting he quoted some of their letter in chapter six and you can check out the you take my rights away episode for a little bit more on what he discussed back then in chapter six he starts this portion of the letter bringing up what they wrote to him now to deal with the questions you wrote about is it good for a man to keep away from women so paul is quoting from their letter as he addresses this question now why would they ask this question the the tanakh that is the torah the prophets and the writings the hebrew scripture text old testament if you must does not Seem to endorse this type of prohibition or command celibacy. Should we keep, is it good for a man to keep away from women? That's nowhere in the Tanakh. Uh, is there, a, you know, that prohibition or command for celibacy? To the contrary, we are commanded to be fruitful and multiply. And you can't multiply with only one factor. There are specific times when husbands and wives are commanded to refrain from physical intimacy in the, uh, in the Torah. But there's no overall command for celibacy. Even the Levitical priests would marry. There was a, a group, a sect of Judaism called the Essenes. And they were around from about the 2nd century BCE until the end of the first century of the common era. The Essenes were strong proponents of denying all fleshly desires to include prohibitions against marriage and thus marital intimacy. And they were centrally focused on all matters spiritual. Self-denial, self-deprecation were enforced in this community Kind of like a a monastery and a convent combined. People who were interested in this lifestyle and becoming a member of the Essenes were required to spend a year among the Essenes to determine if they wanted or believed this was this life was for them. So they were it was mandatory. You had to spend a year living among them the way they lived to determine if you're going to continue in that lifestyle. And if you were married and decided you wanted to continue on with the Essenes, you were to separate or divorce. Even if your spouse and children wanted to you were bringing them into this lifestyle. You were forced to divorce. You would not live as married in this community. It's honestly, it's hard to believe the community lasted as long as they did, given the insistence on celibacy because there would be no organic or natural growth in the community. The only way that it was sustained was through bringing in outsiders. At any rate, that's a a part of why uh, I believe the Corinthians are asking, asking that question. Is it good for a man to keep away from women? Is this something that we all need to do? So Paul's response seems to have some... A little bit of a scene influence to it, maybe, though not a wholesale acceptance for all people. Paul clears the air. Well, because of the danger of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So Paul recognizes not everyone can live in celibacy. Not all are called to live that way. And again, if all were, there wouldn't be any multiplying. He continues on, the husband should give his wife what she is entitled to in the marriage relationship, and the wife should do the same for her husband. The wife is not in charge of her own body, but her husband is. Likewise, the husband is not in charge of his own body, but his wife is. And I do know that this verse gets abused a lot and uh, with with husbands and wives uh, just justifying Either dominating, even abusing, or forcing—you know—forcing intimacy, if you will call it. that. I can't, can't really call it intimacy; it's if it's forced. But um, you know, just dominating or abusing or denying one another. Well, that's not, it, 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 it's not. my body. That's, your body's mine. No, my body's yours. And anyway, without going too far down that path, Paul is not condoning a domineering relationship on either side of marriage, particularly when it comes to the sexual relationship. Just make that very clear, because in some, some certainly paint him to be quite a, uh, quite a male chauvinist, quite, a, quite misogynistic, if you will. So Paul continues. Do not deprive each other except for a limited time by mutual agreement, and then only so as to have extra time for prayer, but afterwards come together again. Otherwise, because of your lack of self-control, you may succumb to the adversary's temptation. I'm giving you this as a suggestion, not a command. Paul gives a great suggestion here, and he makes sure that people understand it is his suggestion. This is not a command from Hashem. And it's important that we do recognize some of Paul's instruction in his, it's his opinion, some of what he has written. It's his opinion and his suggestions. Typically, when he is reminding people of the commands of the Most High, El Elyon, he either provides proof text to the audience or he would use words and phrases which would be familiar to his readers that would would connect them and uh, ring the bell to uh, connecting uh, proof texts his audience would understand what he was talking about when it was, when it was in fact reinforcing a command from the most high. And while we can say scripture says do not deprive each other except for a limited time by mutual agreement and then only so as to have extra time for prayer, but afterwards come together again, that is written in the scriptures. But the implication, if we say, well, scripture says the implication is that it is a command of hashem and that is not and this is where we've got to exercise some care because paul makes it clear that it's a suggestion of his this is his opinion that this would be a good thing to a good thing to practice but it's not a command to do it this way And so we have to be careful when reading, and especially in the epistles, to discern and study out what is the writer's opinion or interpretation or suggestion, and what is the command of Adonai regarding the situation, or is there one? And this awareness is important throughout Scripture, of course, but most heavily in the epistles. The gospel writers, for example, they documented what they witnessed and heard in their narrative. When, even when they write in their narrative, they're not putting their own personal opinion or giving suggestions or their take or spin on things. Though in later years, people have thrown some things in, in parentheses, some parenthetical statements that folks take as instruction or commands. Anyway. Not not going down that road today, um, and so in their narrative, there there isn't their own personal take or spin on things. They were acting as as like reporters. They were witnesses on the events which they saw and heard regarding the Master Yeshua. So Paul makes the suggestion of husbands and wives agreeing on times of physical separation for prayer and fasting, and then coming back together at a predetermined time so as not to cause one another to stumble, to be led into a temptation from the adversary. This is wise, sage advice, I believe. I think it's a good suggestion, though it is not a commandment. Paul reveals... Actually, I wish everyone were like me, but each has his own gift from God. One this, another that. Paul was single, unmarried, and celibate. He wished everyone were like him, but he understood some people had that gift, but others did not. Why did Paul wish ever everyone had that gift? Well, it's because for those who are married, his, his opinion, uh, those who are married, well, they must give attention to the responsibilities related to their spouse and family. And his opinion portion is that he sees it as a distraction from fully immersing oneself into discipleship of the master. Perhaps there's a little bit of influence from the Essenes there, maybe. Or it might be because Yeshua lived a life of celibacy. So I'm I'm not certain. Personally, I, uh, I, I don't fully subscribe with Paul on this issue. Brad, you're stating that you disagree with Scripture? No. I'm disagreeing with Paul's opinion on this matter. And I'm confident in the whole of Scripture that being married does not hinder one's ability to serve Hashem wholly and completely. Once again, even the priests were allowed to marry and they had to be immersed. They had some top of the line duties that they had to perform. So I think we can see that God's okay with marriage. Paul goes on now to the single people and the widows. I say that it is fine if they remain unmarried like me, but If they can't exercise self-control, they should get married because it is better to get married than to keep burning with sexual desire. To those who are married, I have a command. And it is not from me, but from the Lord. Paul is clarifying from his suggestions to what is a command of Adonai. So again, he says... This is a command, and this comes from Adonai. A woman is not to separate herself from her husband, but if she does separate herself, she is to remain single or be reconciled with her husband. Also, a husband is not to leave his wife. So from where does Paul derive this as a command? So there are... um, there are definitely um, texts, passages, and even mentions in the Talmud that the, the husband was the one to provide the divorce get if there was going to be a divorce. But let's even we can we can set that aside for a moment because we'll go with we'll go with um, what we read some of what we read in Torah Genesis two twenty four. This is why a man is to leave his father and mother and to stick with his wife and they are to be one flesh. Okay, there's the command. Come together, stay together, be one flesh. The master Yeshua quotes this in in Mark chapter 10 and he has, adds a little bit of depth of clarification to it. For this reason a man should leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and the two are to become one flesh. Thus, they are no longer two, but one. So then, no one should break apart what God has joined together. Yeshua, bringing it home. There are other scriptures declaring Adonai hates divorce. And if a husband and wife are separated and then seek to reunify their, their marriage... If the woman has been with another uh, or with, with one other or many other men, the husband cannot take her back in that case. And those are commands of Hashem. So Paul shifts back to giving to advice there. He just, he just laid out a command there. And now he's going to shift back with a little bit more of his personal opinion. And once again, I see what he presents here as sound wisdom. So, to the rest, those who are not single or widowed, I say, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is satisfied to go on living with him, he should not leave. He should not leave her. And also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband who is satisfied to go on living with her, she is not to leave him. Paul is saying that just because your spouse is an unbeliever does not mean you should separate from him or her. Separation, and not, not even to the point of divorce, was happening as a result of One spouse in a marriage coming out of paganism to follow Yeshua, but the other remaining in the old beliefs and practices. Paul's suggestion is to remain with your spouse as long as they are willing to stay together. I think this is sound. You can continue to shine the light of the gospel to your husband or wife. But there may be even more to this which we're about to get to. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband has been set aside for God by the wife, and the unbelieving wife has been set aside for God by the brother. I'm going to circle back to these two statements shortly. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are set aside for God. So what does Paul mean by your children would be unclean? So the Hebrew word is momzer. In English, it's usually translated as bastard or illegitimate child. Our present day definition of an illegitimate child simply means a child born out of wedlock. That's how, that, how that we use that word. Um, or how we use that, that phrase, illegitimate, or some folks use the harsher bastard. This is not the Hebrew understanding. That is not what a Momser is. It doesn't apply to a child born out of wedlock. It applies to a child where one parent is Jewish, a follower of Hashem, the God of Israel, and the other follows other religious beliefs or the pagan gods in this case so what paul is saying is by not separating and remaining with the unbelieving spouse your children are being sanctified made holy for god paul continues but if the unbelieving spouse separates himself let him be separated in circumstances like these the brother or sister is not enslaved god has called you to a life of peace if the unbelieving spouse wants to be separated due to the husband or wife's faith in hashem through yeshua so this is the the unbelieving spouse who's still in pagan worship practice or or, or whatever they're doing and they want to get away from a believing husband or wife whose faith is in Hashem through Yeshua, the believing spouse is not obligated to remain where they are not wanted, basically. If the unbeliever is content to stay, then it should be so. If not, the believer can have a clear conscience for being separated. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person live the life the the Lord has assigned him and live it in the condition he was in when God called him. So Paul is reinforcing, if you came to the faith as a married person, remain in that marriage relationship. If you came to it as single and you are so gifted, remain single. But don't burn with desire. If you are not called to celibacy, get married. Now, I'm going to jump back to verse 14 because this is where I'm being challenged in my understanding from some of my evangelical doctrinal beliefs. Let's go back up there. 4. For the unbelieving husband has been set aside for God by the wife. And the unbelieving wife has been set aside for God by the brother. So what is Paul saying or implying here? Where the translation I'm reading uses the phrase set aside. And some of yours may say um, made holy even or something to that effect, sanctified. So the Greek word that is there, where mine says set aside, that the unbelieving wife has been set aside for God. The Greek word is hegiastai. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correct. It's H-E-G-I-A-S-T-A-I. Hegiastai. Which means, this word means sanctified or hallowed. It means to consecrate or make holy. This is the same word used where we read in what is called the Lord's Prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. That's the word that's the word that is used here. That same hagiestai. Hallowed be your name. Or it's also the same word in Yeshua's prayer to the Father in John 17. Sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. Sanctify Hege. Estai. So I'm going to read that verse again, verse fourteen, with some of my own interpolation. For the unbelieving, unsaved, non-Christian husband has been made holy consecrated, sanctified, and hallowed for God by the God-fearing, Yeshua-believing wife. And the unbelieving, unsaved, non-Christian wife has been made holy, consecrated, sanctified, and hallowed for God by the God-fearing, Yeshua-believing husband. Why is this so challenging to my faith or my... uh, my established understanding of the scriptures and some doctrine, which I hold to, it appears to me, and please study to show yourself approved of God. I am not saying that what I'm about to present is fact, but there seems to be an overarching theme of priestly intercession, which I think is ignored and misunderstood and even overlooked conveniently or just explained away due to a limited concept of atonement, redemption, intercession, and especially salvation. As I've said this before. Many Christians take virtually any passage of scripture that has the word save, saved, or salvation in it and associate it with eternal salvation, going to heaven. This is not the case. It is not the Jewish understanding. And when these passages are read in their proper context, the majority, even the vast majority, are speaking of situational rescue or salvation from earthly situations and consequences Most often due to sin, that rescue, that salvation, situational. Rarely is the salvation described or talked about in its context in scripture, a reference to a portion in the coming kingdom. It's not, and I'll keep moving forward. So I had a, a, a conversation with a friend of mine recently, And he brought this up. He said, it seems like the church's big focus is on getting to go to heaven. But that doesn't seem like it's the big focus of the Bible. And I agreed with him. Most gospel presentations ask, do you want to go to heaven? Or don't you want to avoid going to hell? There's a much lesser emphasis in the scriptures on going to heaven than other matters, i.e., how are we living here and now, which can have an eternal impact. Clearly, eternity and where it is spent, a portion in the coming kingdom or Gehenna, is important. But we put the cart before the horse. We put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. I, 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 sorry, that's a little bit of a, a rabbit trail, actually, in this moment. But we, we need to understand that when the scriptures speak of salvation. And so what I'm seeing, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, is the believing husband or wife, not just as a witness, to the unbelieving spouse, but actually an advocate and intercessor in a priestly role before Hashem on behalf of their spouse. I believe that we, we have a limited understanding of intercession. And we most often attribute this to praying for someone, praying for other people over current struggles praying for missionaries praying for the persecuted church these these things and those those are good things to pray over I'm not, I'm not discounting those but intercession is seen as you know praying for someone in a current struggle with uh, difficulties illnesses etc but I don't think this encapsulates the scriptural definition of intercession and again I'm not diminishing the the importance of the aforementioned types of prayer for people, but I believe that is one small facet on the gemstone that is intercessory prayer and intercession, the greatest of which comes in a more priestly role. And so what do I mean by a priestly role? I am not saying that we are Levitical priests because we're not. And people who confuse that, you're wrong. We are not. And I've cleared that up in a couple of different episodes in the past. You can look them up, find them. Unless you know you are a descendant of Aaron, a Levite by blood. In that case, you are, you are, of, you are of the Levites and you, you have a priestly role to fulfill. But we can have similar roles in our families. So the priests present offerings and sacrifices on behalf of others to atone for their sins. The priests make intercession that the others may be reconciled to Hashem through the sacrifices which are offered, most notably on Yom Kippur, the annual day of atonement. Atonement is made on behalf of the entire nation of Israel by the priesthood. Specifically, the high priest going this one time per year into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the unknown or unwitting sins of the people on behalf of the entire nation. So, I see this as a picture of what we believers should do on behalf of our unbelieving loved ones, on behalf of our entire household. However wide, however many generations we have and those which will come, we intercede on their behalf, sanctifying them, making them holy, consecrating them for God. And this is something that has been stirring in me for several months. And I I don't base it solely on this scripture, 1 Corinthians 7, 14. It actually resurfaced. And rekindled in doing this study in 1 Corinthians. Because it's something that has been there. And it has been. The, the, the wheels have been turning. But I've kind of set it to the side. And then I'm reading this. And I'm like oh whoa. So my curiosity was piqued. When studying Romans with a brother. And uh, when we came to chapter 11. Reading where Paul wrote that. The challah. The portion of the bread dough. That is set apart for the priests. The challah is holy and because that small portion is holy the entire lump is made holy he also says the roots of the tree are holy and as a result the whole tree is holy and i think i have misunderstood the importance of the remnant that is so often referred to because I believe it ties to both of these things that he's talking about. So I always considered the remnant of those who remain loyal to Hashem um, as being a means of continuing the faith, because there is, there's this remnant, and they can continue to pass on the message of loyalty to Hashem and to, to the coming generations, and so it could continue and, and spread from this small remnant. And I do, I believe that part is true, but I'm starting to think that there is much more to it, not just for the benefit of those who will come after, but for the atonement, for the consecrating and for the making holy of those who either do not, they don't have, or they lost faith or their loyalty, or they have fallen away. And so this idea was also reinforced in John chapter 5 and verse 16. And I, I, I'm not just hunting hunting and searching for passages to support some doctrinal idea. This, this stuff goes against some of my, my doctrinal beliefs. And so I'm studying and I'm looking for the context of things that are being said. And so... I'm looking at the, the context of how these statements are said. So I, so I don't just come up with some theory of mine. What if this? And then, and then just hunt and peck for evidence to support it. I'm trying to look at the evidence, scriptural evidence of what I'm seeing and to see if it indicates what it indicates. And again, what I'm considering goes against some of my core understanding and doctrinal beliefs. First John Chapter Five, verses sixteen and seventeen. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not lead to death, he will ask, and God will give him life for those whose sinning does not lead to death. There is a sin that does lead to death. I am not saying he should pray about that. all wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that but there is sin that does not lead to death so What John is describing here, you see a brother committing a sin. It's not a sin that leads to death. And so you ask on behalf of that brother and God will give him life. So this this speaks to what I believe is the deeper meanings of intercession seeking Adonai's forgiveness on behalf of another for sins that do not lead to death. So, what is the sin that leads to death? There is sin that leads to death. John spelled that out. And so, some will say that any sin that is spelled out in the scriptures that calls for capital punishment or a death sentence, that is sin that leads to death. And, and that may be, that is, uh, that's not my full understanding, but it, it, that may be, but I think the sin that leads to death is defined in numbers chapter 15, verse 30 and 31. But an individual who does something wrong intentionally or defiantly, Whether a citizen or a foreigner is blaspheming Adonai, that person will be cut off from his people because he has had contempt for the word of Adonai and has disobeyed his command. That person will be cut off completely. His offense will remain with him. So these are people who have knowledge of the truth. A citizen. And it says whether a citizen or a foreigner, but the foreigners that were living among, uh, among the Jews at that time, they were being they were they were being uh, brought in or taught the understanding of what is right, what is wrong, who God is, that He is holy, He is to be revered, honored, and uh, and glorified, and so when someone was intentionally or defiantly Sinning, doing something wrong with intention, knowing that it is wrong and I'm going to do it because it's wrong. That person is to be cut off. I believe that that is a definition of the sin that leads to death. My current understanding is that the defiant, intentional, willing sin is sin leading to death. And thus is something for which another person cannot intercede or atone for we couldn't step in stand in the gap so I believe uh, 1st John the whole book of 1st John as well as the book of Hebrews bear this out as far as that uh, the willing sin defiance and intentional sin being sin that leads to death so when one sins knowingly they have to repent. On their own and provide the offering. When one sins unknowingly, but then it is brought to their awareness, they must repent and provide an offering. When one sins unknowingly or unwittingly and they remain unaware, the priests bring the offering and intercede, making atonement on their behalf. I believe this is part of our role and responsibility as believers in the most high God and as followers of Yeshua. Where there is that knowledge that that accountability and so people act intentionally or defiantly. Um, I don't believe that that even if we do pray on their behalf for that for that forgiveness. I don't believe from what I read that that will be a prayer that is Uh, That is honored. So Yeshua is currently in the true heavenly holy of holies making intercession for us as our high priest advocating for us in atoning for sins which are unknown to us while we humble ourselves before Hashem and repent of the sins we are aware of. So you see the difference here. When we become aware of sin or we've been engaging in a sinful activity, we need to repent, come before God. That we need to repent for that. And yes, Yeshua, Yeshua is ultimately the atoning sacrifice for those things. When we when we sin and it's unknown to us, our high priest is Yeshua, and he is making intercession for us before the Father. And so again, when we know it we, we must come before and repent, as it has always been. When it is unknown, when or, or we do something unwittingly, Yeshua is is advocating for us. He is um, interceding on our behalf for those things and yikes, (laughs) I am scaring myself a little bit here (laughs) because I said that this is, uh, it's just something that is stirring and percolating and I'm real, I'm not trying to confuse anyone. I assure you of that. I'm, I'm attempting to work out an equation and showing you my work basically a really long equation here so as back to 1 Corinthians 7:14 as to believing husbands and wives consecrating sanctifying making holy or hallowed the unbelieving spouse i think this goes to that priestly role the set aside holy portion the believing spouse making the entire lump of dough holy the Holy One, blessed be he, stated he wanted all Israel to be a priesthood. We know that. We know that passage in, uh, in Exodus. The Apostle Peter declares that we, Jew and God-fearing grafted in Gentile followers of the Messiah Yeshua, are a royal priesthood in order for you to declare the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. Called a royal priesthood, a responsibility of priests is interceding on behalf of others before the Father. And I believe we can advocate for others before Hashem, particularly those who are ignorant, uninformed, or lack understanding and knowledge, and that by the grace of Hashem, they can be set apart, made holy to him by our intercession. The entire lump made holy by the set apart portion, a nation saved by a remnant. And I will say that the way I see this now has absolutely changed the way I pray for others and particularly my family, all my household, in hopes that, like a priest, I may intercede on their behalf, that they, too, would be set aside for Hashem, that he would look favorably upon them because of the favor Yeshua found in his eyes. The question, of course, would be, then, is individual responsibility of repentance and a declaration of faith to the one who lacks understanding the ignorant or uninformed is that absolved and that's where i struggle because i don't i don't know what that, that with the knowledge and understanding that i have I don't know that that is the case. I what I do know is this I personally, I am without excuse if I do not follow the Master Yeshua and live according to my understanding of the scriptures, walking in the ways of Hashem. I am I, I, I am without excuse to that. yes, God's grace is is absolutely there for me, and I rely on it and his mercy daily. Hallelujah for his abundant mercy. But is it possible that I have put limitations on the mercy and loving kindness of Hashem towards others due to an incorrect understanding? I have said before, and i still I still strongly lean this way for myself i i I, I lean towards my need to to obey to adhere to the the word of Adonai To the Torah and to the commands and laws and, and living the life to which I am called by Hashem through Yeshua and filled with his breath, his wind, the Ruach HaKodesh, that I can walk in his way. I'm responsible for that. But for others, I lean harder towards grace and mercy. Maybe those who don 't have the understanding who lack it who who are just ignorant of certain things, who have been misled, and those kinds of things, what we do know for certain, and I honestly again I want to say i 'm not i 'm not trying to confuse anyone, so please study to show yourself approved of God, because I know there 's a lot in this episode and, and I hope. That you were able to pick up what I'm putting down and what I'm processing, and that, and that, perhaps God is stirring that in you as well. Something to consider and to, and to seek and to study about because it actually, it keeps growing as I put it together. And and now even just recording this episode, I'm doing some pondering out loud. And again, not trying to confuse anyone. I'm just encouraging to continue to seek Hashem. And to know him better and to not put him in a box of our preconceived, predetermined, premeditated doctrinal thoughts on things. I believe his abundant mercy may far exceed our expectations and limitations. What we know for certain is that there is a lost and dying world desperately needing bread, the bread of life the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth. So let's go out and give him heaven. Oh, and with Passover beginning this week, I may not produce a new episode for a little bit. Uh, we will see, as the Lord wills. Um, if not, I may repost or um, yeah, repost um, a couple of past episodes that uh, speak to Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We'll see how that goes. But until next time, may the favor of the Master, Yeshua, the Messiah, found in the eyes of Hashem be upon you and all your household. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding reign in your hearts and minds in the Messiah, Yeshua. Grace and peace. Ch'in Shalom.